0: We're in the middle of this series called What Now? And really, we started it a few weeks ago because it's like, okay, now everything is in chaos, and now it's election season. So let's talk about that, too, because I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but we're going to talk a little bit about, okay, let's sort of think through what it looks like to... Um, uh, to what God wants for us who follow Him. How does this look for us? So it's kind of what we're going to do. There's a Time article a couple of... Um, couple of weeks ago about how the the stress level of people in America because of the lockdowns and because of and you know South Carolina I talked to some of my friends in other states that they're much more locked down than we are and so there's a lot of stress there for that and then the election season and I don't know about you but it just I'm ready for it to be kind of over especially the election stuff. This is an actual obituary from about four years ago. This is really funny. It was when uh, Trump and, and Clinton were running against each other, and this is what this is this is actual. Faced with the prospect of voting for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, Mary Ann Nolan of Richardson chose instead to pass into the eternal love of God on Sunday, May fifteenth. That's that's an actual obituary. Some of you all didn't know that was an option, uh, but uh, evidently. It is. All right, bad bad political joke. Ready? Here it goes. Both presidential candidates are trapped on a boat in the ocean. Who gets saved? America. Okay, all right, here we go. All right, so, not going to tell you to vote for, but we're just going to talk about, there's this really interesting dynamic in Scripture. I don't know if you know this, but in Scripture there were three important elections. You're like, well, there were elections in Scripture. Yeah, there really are, and so we're going to talk about it just a little bit. And Honestly, in all three of these elections, God was on the ballot. So uh, maybe it'll make sense in just a second. All right, so you see when you read Scripture, especially the Old Testament, there was this idea God has about how life can work. And so before Israel had kings, they were ruled by people called judges. And really, it was much more of a. it kind of the people kind of looked to God for guidance. It's kind of how it worked, and God has this had this grand idea of what life could look like, and where people, all people, were treated fairly and justly. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, if you can remember those, the Ten Commandments were sort of an outline of what this noble experiment would look like. What would it look like if we had God as our leader? And so you see commandments in there like, remember the Sabbath. And the idea behind a Sabbath is don't get so obsessed with work that you don't take time to rest. You need to have a rest rhythm in your life. And it talks about uh, tithing in Scripture. And so uh, not to be so overwhelmed with the pursuit of wealth that we can't be givers and generous. And And in the Ten Commandments it says not to lie and so there's this idea that we're going to tell the truth even if it hurts but that's the way that we can get along together better and you find that in life it really does work that way and uh, not to covet other people's stuff don't be jealous and and so this the ten commandments were sort of this this kind of a blueprint for shalom for peace and this was god's idea and it was uh, hey if you do this this life will be great and god picks a people to to you know to kind of live out this experiment and they're called the the israelites and so he picks them to be this this kind of grand experiment and for a while god leads and the judges kind of help judge and there there's one uh, sort of spiritual leader you know in the catholic church we're not catholic so this we don't have a guy like this, but in the Catholic Church, they have the Pope, the kind of the guy that leads. In, the, in Israel, they had a guy that led, kind of the, the head religious dude. And for a while, everything was okay. And then there comes a time where there's sort of this election. They, the people, they, they want somebody else to lead Israel. God's been leading. They kind of don't like that anymore. So they go to the religious leader, his name is Samuel, and they make a request, and I I want to read it to you. So all the elders, now the elders of Israel, they were sort of like leaders of the clans, there were like 12 tribes, and so the 12 tribes each had a guy that kind of led them, and the the, the elders are these leaders, and the leaders, they go uh, of Israel, gather together, and they came to Samuel, this religious leader, and they said, you're old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. And this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. I think that's one of the funniest lines in Scripture. Um, Hey, Samuel, you're old, and your sons are inept. And this displeased Samuel. I don't know about you, but I love it when people call me old and tell me that my kids are inept. But anyway, this displeased Samuel, so Samuel prays. Uh, maybe maybe when we get displeased, we should pray. Maybe that's how it works. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. And you can kind of hear a little bit of sadness in God's response here. Now, here's the deal. God wants to set up this community where it's just and fair and loving and people are generous and people take care of one another and... This is what he wants. But for that to happen, you have to have God as your leader. And the Israelites are sort of rejecting that notion. And so they, they say we want to choose something else. And here's the thing about God. He gives us choice. We have the freedom to choose things. I don't know about you, but I make bad choices sometimes. I have the freedom to make even bad choices. God has a way he wants us to live. He has a way he wants things to work. We can choose to go that path or not, but we get to choose. And every time that we reject God's plan, we are saying we're choosing somebody else to lead us. Every time we reject His plan, um, every time we neglect the poor, every time we judge somebody on the color of their skin, not the content of their character, every time that we uh, sort of discard God's um, design for sexual life, Every time that we nurse resentment, we are saying, God, we choose somebody other than you. And so Samuel responds God says, Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly. And let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. God gives us free will, but he also gives us fair warning. Now, the next couple of verses I'm going to read for you are like negative, a negative political campaign ad. Don't you love those? Oh, they are great, aren't they? Hey, my opponent is a gravy-sucking pig, but if you vote for me, you get a unicorn and I'm going to cure cancer. That's kind of how they go. You know, it's like, uh, my opponent really, really, really stinks. Uh, but uh, So here's this is the most honest negative campaign ad ever because God wrote it. Let me show you. This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. You can choose this if you want to. This is, be careful what you wish for, God is saying. Hey, you can choose this, but look. He will take your sons, make them serve with his chariots and horses. Some will be assigned as commanders of thousands, some of 50. So some of your boys are going to be in the military. And others he's going to assign to the plow, to plow his ground, to keep his harvest, reap his harvest. And still others will make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots and your daughters, well, they're going to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, and basically they are going to work for him. Now, you can choose this. It's your choice. And you're saying, well, what about my stuff? Well, I'm glad you asked. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves. He'll take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage. That means a tenth of the wine that you produce. And give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys. He'll take his own use he'll take a tenth of your flocks and he and and you yourselves will become his slaves you know what this is basically he's going to raise your taxes that's what this is hey you can pick this but it understand there's a cost when you don't pick God is saying there's a cost when you don't pick me to lead you you get to choose you can choose this now the very next verse is amazing when that day comes You'll cry out for relief from the king you've chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. This is your mama saying to you, you can do you can do that, but don't come crying to me. This is what this is God's version of don't come crying to me when that doesn't go well for you. And God is saying, "Hey, you can pick a king. This is an option for you. It's not a good option, I'm telling you why. This is why. This king is going to press your boys into military service or he's going to make them his field hands and your daughter's going to have to work for him and he's going to take a tenth of your stuff. You can have that if you want. This verse, by the way, was so subversive that kings in the Middle Ages wouldn't let it be read in, in church because they were afraid that people would read this and reject them as king. So they just prohibited the priests from reading this in the churches in the Middle Ages. And there are two names on the ballot. There's God and a human king, and God is saying, you can pick a human king, and I think God wants them, I think God hopes they remember. We don't remember well, honestly. Good stuff happens, and then if bad stuff happens, we forget the good stuff. And maybe they're going through a little bit of a lull right here, and God hopes they remember, because God has done amazing things for the people of Israel. I mean, they had been enslaved in Egypt, and he performs these ten plagues that were amazing, and then they escape and he parts the Red Sea and then he leads them by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day and then they're out in the wilderness and they don't have any food and he provides manna and water and he takes care of them and then when they enter the promised land, he gives them victories and I think he's hoping that they will remember. And The question is, who's going to be your king? Is it going to be God or is it going to be a human king? But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king to reign over us. And then we will be like all the other nations. I mean, what a, what a noble ambition. Then we will be like all the other nations. And we'll have somebody to lead us into war. We reject God and we're going to choose a king. And God loses this first election. And when Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it to the Lord. And the Lord answered him, uh, listen to them and give them a king. And then this very next verse. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. If you ever saw the movie Forrest Gump, at the end, Forrest would tell these stories. And at the end, he would say something like, I think he said, "Um, and that's all I have to say about that. Well, this is Samuel saying, that's all I have to say about that. This is going to happen. You guys have rejected God as your king and you, he's going to give you a king. And they did. He did. And they had kings. Some kings were better than others, just like some presidents are better than others. He, uh, some, they're all fallible. Here's the problem with human kings and human leaders. Human leaders can't really provide sole solutions. They promise. Everybody makes promises. You see polit- politicians make promises all the time. It's not the promise so much as the follow through. And whatever political side you line up on, you think that we have a tendency to think that okay, if my side is in power, then I can make the other people do what uh, we can make the other people do what we want them to do. They have to obey us. Whoever wins gets to be in charge. And I, to some degree, it's true. There's a great preacher named John Ortberg, and he said. If we believe that political power is the ultimate form of power to make things right, we're at odds with the teaching of the Bible and the message of Jesus. And so there are kings in Israel. Some are bad, some are good, some are so bad that eventually Israel is overtaken by other powers. Other kings and other nations come in and they take them over. And then the Israelites have to obey not their king but somebody else's king. And we, most of us, have never lived in a situation where we don't have freedom. I mean, one of the things, one of the hallmarks of, of our nation is freedom. We can do what we want for the most part. We can say what we want for the most part. We can worship the way we want for the most part. But not everybody has that freedom. And you have the Israelites, and for a time they followed God and they, could, they had freedom. And then they had kings, and then they had somebody else's king. And when Jesus shows up, they're under the rule of the Romans. And so from the time of the Israelites until the time of Jesus, they start to dream. They start to think, what would it be like if God was our king? kind of funny because God had been their king and then they rejected him but now I don't know if you've ever done this before but you make a decision and you regret the decision and then you go you look back oh if I just had if I hadn't done that and they start to think they start to dream what would it be like if we had God as our king again some of their prophets start to write about this God named Isaiah he says for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor. Unlike a human king, he'll be a Wonderful Counselor. He'll be a Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government, the peace, there will be no end. And the idea gets passed down through the ages, through the generations. They start to think, wow, wouldn't it be great if we could have a king like this who is a wonderful counselor and God and our everlasting father? What if we made God the king again? And there was a son who was born and there was a child who was given and his name was Jesus. And he starts a push toward the second election. All campaigns have slogans. You know this. Everybody has a slogan, make America great again, no malarkey. Jesus had a campaign slogan. It was this. The kingdom of heaven is near. What a promise. Hey, 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 if you vote for me, you can have the kingdom of heaven. It's near. All you have to do is vote for me. That's a great campaign promise. And Jesus begins, in some regard, this campaign toward, hey, if you want the kingdom of God, choose me. Now, it's an interesting campaign because he doesn't have any funds. No super PACs raising money, none of that kind of thing. He has no funds. In fact, he has no headquarters. The Bible says that Jesus didn't even have a place to lay his head. He even doesn't even predict victory. He he doesn't even act like... In fact, let me show you the least inspiring campaign speech ever. Least inspiring ever. Jesus Jesus said, the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. Remember the elders from the other story? They're still going to reject him. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And I've got to be honest with you, that's not very inspiring. And he's got a guy named Simon Peter on his team, and Simon Peter is sort of like the campaign manager. And he goes on Anderson Cooper and he says, whoa, 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 that's not exactly what he meant. And he's trying to explain it, and Jesus says, get behind me, you don't understand what you're talking about. And sometimes we have a 14-year-old daughter and she'll say something and we'll say, at least you don't know what you're talking about. And sometimes people will say to me, you don't know what you're talking about. And sometimes we don't know what we're talking about. And Simon Peter didn't know what he was talking about. Jesus is brought before a guy named Pilate. He's the kind of the chief officer in charge of this region. He's sort of the mayor or the governor. And he has the power of life and death. And the elders, the religious elders, they have power. They don't want to really give up power. And so they don't like that Jesus is talking about power or talking about the kingdom of heaven. And so they make some accusations. They bring some charges against Jesus. And they bring him before Pilate. And they say, hey, uh, this guy, Jesus, he's trying to take over. He's trying to take over your kingdom and he's trying to overthrow the Roman government, which is even above you, and you need to watch out for this guy. And Pilate calls him in and he asks him this very important question. He asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? It's really important. There had been a king of the Jews. His name was Herod the Great, which I think is a great. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you like to be. Paul the Great, you're not, but you could. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome? It'd be great if my name was Paul, uh, Paul the Great. You know, um, who who doesn't want the Great Alexander? There's like three of those in the world ever. Alexander the Great and Herod the Great. He was the Great, and he was called the King of the Jews. And this is a loaded question. This is like the most politically loaded question ever. Hey, hey, hey! Are you the King of the Jews? Because they're saying, you think you're the king of the Jews. And Polly kind of asks it with a bit of a smirk, I think. And he's like, okay, uh, are you really a threat to me? That's kind of what he's asking. Are you a threat to me? Are you not just a threat to me? Are you a threat to the Roman government? Are you really going to try to overthrow us? I mean, you think about the position Jesus was in when he's asked this question. He had been beaten to within an inch of his life. He really didn't have much going on here. Are you really the king of the Jews? And in one of the most important political statements of all time, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. It is an important political statement because we who follow Him need to understand His kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight because that's what kingdoms do. We see it all the time in the world today. People are fighting for power. We have political parties Fighting for power. This is what we do. We want power. And Jesus is like, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, we'd be fighting for power to prevent my arrest from the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is from another place. My kingdom isn't of this world. Powerful. And then comes the second election. It was at a time called Passover. You've heard of it, I'm sure. Passover was kind of like 4th of July for us. It was the time where the Jews celebrated Jesus's um, God's delivering them out of Egypt into the promised land. And so they remembered this, and they celebrated it, and in a kind of a political show, Pilate every year would would release a prisoner. It's kind of part of the shtick, you know, he would would come up and basically he would say, hey, Caesar's a good guy, you you know, we tax you almost to death, but... Uh, As a sign of our benevolence, to show that we have a heart, we're going to release a prisoner to you. And then, Pilate presents the options. Two names on the ballot. Jesus, King of the Jews. Now, Pilate knew that the elders and the religious leaders didn't like Jesus because he he was kind of taking some of their power away. So Pilate actually presents him favorably. Jesus, king, you want this guy cuz he's he's your king. Or do you want Barabbas? Now Barabbas, we don't know a ton about, but he was an insurrectionist, he was a zealot, he was the kind of guy that would kill Romans when they were caught alone. He was really a rebel, he was rebellious, he was a rebel. Which guy do you want? Really God's on the ballot again in this case, and I suspect that Jesus hopes they remember. Just like God hoped they were to remember when He got voted out of office, uh, Jesus is hoping they would rem- remember and think about what things Jesus had accomplished. I mean I think he 's probably hoping that they remember that He was able to heal people born blind, never been done before, never really been done since, and He would touch lepers and lepers would be completely healed, and he would take uh, Five barley loaves and two fish and he would feed thousands of people. He was able to do these things. He did miracles. He turned water into wine. He walked on the water. He was meek and humble. He turned over the money changers tables in the temple. He did certain things and he was hoping that people would remember. And they didn't. And Jesus loses the election. They picked Barabbas, I think mostly because they wanted somebody who would slaughter Romans. We don't like Romans, and therefore we're going to pick Barabbas. Now, Jesus' momentary loss was actually the biggest win in the history of the world. I mean, the early returns were Barabbas won, but honestly, on the third day, we see that Jesus won. In Ephesians it says, God raised Christ from the dead and exalted him to the place of highest honor and supreme authority in the heavenly realms. No recount, no hanging chads. God raised Jesus from the dead. Which leads us to the third election we're going to talk about today. It's the most important election that you'll ever participate in. It's The question on the ballot is, who's going to run my life? Who's going to run my life? There are two options, two names on the ballot, Jesus or me. I get to choose. I can choose me. It's not a good choice. I can choose that. You can choose you. It's your choice. Not a good choice. but You can choose that. Jesus or you? Most important decision you'll ever make because it's the decision that will affect your eternity remember Jesus said my kingdom isn't of this world well he does have a kingdom and it's an eternal kingdom and it will last forever and a vote for Jesus is a vote for eternity with Jesus and then we think sometimes okay a well, vote for Jesus means I'll never be sick or I'll never be poor Jesus doesn't promise that in fact Jesus one time said in this world you will have trouble but take heart I've overcome the world Jesus doesn't make campaign promises he can't keep or doesn't intend to keep What he does say is, okay, you're going to have tough times, but I'll be with you, and then eternity is ours together. We get through the difficulty of this life, and then we have eternity forever. This is the choice that we get to make. We all get to make this choice. We all have to make this choice. This is an election you can't just pass on. By not voting, you're voting for yourself. You vote for Jesus, or you vote for you. It's important that we understand That this is an election I will tell you to vote for. In this election, vote for Jesus. It is the best choice. Really, it's the only choice. When I was seven years old, I made a decision to follow Christ. I have done it incredibly imperfectly. For over 50 years, I've followed imperfectly. Every time I've Strayed, every time I've stumbled, I've been forgiven. Every egregious act I've committed in the face of a holy God, He's forgiven. Every time I've chosen not to walk in the way He wants me to, every time He helps me back on the path. For over 50 years, I can tell you it's the best decision I've ever made. No regrets. Have you ever made a choice and you regretted it? Sometimes we do. Buy a car and then it's like, oh, I don't like the color, you know. Or You buy a carpet and it's like, oh, why did I get that carpet? I mean, why did I let my wife talk me into pink carpet? You know, it's like, oh my, this is horrible. Um, Why did I get this? Why did I do that? This is a uh, decision that you never regret. Now, let's talk about this election in our country. We are citizens of this great country. Um, We're part of the country. We're part of our neighborhood. We're part of our world. And as such, we have responsibility. So, I'm going to give us some advice, if you'll bear with me. Three things we can do during this election. Number one, be involved. Know what's at stake. Do your research. Listen to people you agree with. Listen to people you don't agree with. It makes a lot of sense. You, you get all the information. The Bible here says in James, to the one who knows the good to do but doesn't do it, to that person it's sin. And so if we know this is good and understand something, the gift of voting has been given to you through the blood and sacrifice of men and women who have fought for that freedom. It is a very good thing. Government and politics are messy. I get that. The political season is overwhelming. I get that too. Every candidate is flawed. If you think your candidate isn't flawed, you've not looked close enough. I've looked at all of them. They are flawed. One, two, ten, they're flawed. It just is what it is. God's interested in the political arena. You just have to understand it's not the ultimate arena. And so we get involved and we vote. The other day, Miriam and I waited in line for an hour and 40 minutes to vote. I was talking to some people. They waited two hours to vote. It's okay. You understand there are countries where you can't vote. You're not given that privilege. And so to wait for an hour and a half to vote or an hour and 40 minutes or whatever it was was a small, small, minimal sacrifice to make to be a good citizen, to be involved. The second thing is we need to be civil in our discourse around this election. That's one of the things that's it's kind of hostile and contemptuous out there and, and noxious. I mean, it's a lot of bad stuff going on. And it's funny, when, when we read something, when we, when we read an ideology that we agree with, it's like, oh yeah, and everybody that disagrees with that, well, they're, they're just chumps. You know, it's kind of how we think. And I read this really super interesting article the other day, and I thought, yeah, I agree with this. Um, it, it was a study concerning intellect, intellect and, and which people are the smartest. And this was the conclusion. Uh, they said that the people with bad eyesight are actually more intelligent than people who have good eyesight. So everybody with glasses, look at those other people right now. Yeah, you know. You know what I'm saying. I know. I love that study because it made me feel smart. And when people agree with me politically, I'm, I'm like, I'm for them. Hey, we're, we're, we're kindred. But let me ask you the question. When is another person's political ideology so incorrect that you have the freedom to despise them? Scripturally. Let me show you a verse. 1 Timothy. This was written by a guy named Paul. Now you know the word, you know the name Paul. Paul was a guy who wrote much of the New Testament. Sometimes he would plant churches and write letters back to those churches. So... Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. All those are letters he wrote back to churches that he had planted and he had left. There are three letters he writes, two of them to a guy named Timothy and one to Titus. These are young pastors, young leaders, young leaders in the church. And in those letters, it's a different little bit of different uh, idea. Um, To the churches, he talks about church stuff. To the young pastors, he's talking about leadership stuff. Hey, this is how you lead, this is what you do. So Paul writes to this guy named Timothy, a young leader, and he says, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and for all those in authority. Now, when Paul writes this, most scholars believe that the king at the time, that the the Caesar at the time of Rome was a guy named Nero. I don't know if you know much about Nero, but he was whack. He was wackety, whack-wack. I mean, he was way out there. He was crazy. He persecuted Christians. In fact, many believe that Paul actually eventually suffered death at the hand of Nero, which makes this verse even more interesting, because Paul writes about the guy who will eventually kill him, that we, are, that we should make petitions and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving for that king. So, biblically speaking, we really shouldn't treat anyone with contempt until they have at least killed us, uh, evidently, is Paul's standard on this. So, we're going to be civil. We're going to be involved, we're going to be civil, and then we're going to be confident. The truth is, God's not worried about November the 3rd. God's not sitting on His throne. He... God has never said, oh, what's going to happen if Trump wins? Or, oh, what's going to happen if Biden wins? He's not on his throne wondering about such things. Whoever wins or whatever happens, God will still be on his throne. In the book of Revelation, it's the last book of the the Bible. Right at the end, the last two chapters talk about what it's going to be like, what heaven's going to be like. So if you've read Revelation, and there's a lot of ways to interpret it, but there's bad stuff that happens and then God wins. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of, I'll sum, summarize Revelation. Bad stuff, God wins. That's kind of how it works. And at the very end, there's this idea, there's this encouragement. Hey, this is what heaven is going to look like. A guy named John writes this and he says this. John was one of Jesus' best friends. Then I saw... A new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth that passed away. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard... That's a beautiful picture, by the way. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. No separation. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. He doesn't promise that on this earth, but he does promise it eventually. He'll wipe away every tear from their eye. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. It's not promised now. It is promised for the future. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I'm making all things new. There is, um, this election is important. (laughs) Every four years we hear this is the most important election. Every four years it might be true. But let me tell you, the most important thing, most important decision, the most important decision you'll ever make is who's going to lead your life. But then I think these three things about this election apply. Hey, let's be involved. Let's make sure we're involved. I would encourage you to vote. Let's be civil in our conversation, our discourse with others. Make sure we're not, you know, angry with people. And let's be confident. Whatever happens, God is still in control. God's control doesn't end on November 3rd, however this election goes. It's really important for us to understand that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the confidence that we can take into the last couple of weeks of this, um, this season. election I pray that you'd be with our leaders in this country what a year we've had give us wisdom and civility and may we who follow you lead the way in how we talk with one another and discuss things and think help us to lead the way Lord mostly Vastly more important. I pray that we would decide to follow you no matter what, no matter the circumstance. You will be our king. You'll be our king. We pray this humbly, humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.